This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Welcome to Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. I'm your host, Leonard DiLorenzo. In late February, Pope Francis called the heads of the National Conferences of Bishops from around the world to the Vatican to address the sexual abuse and leadership crisis racking the church and the faithful. From this side of news reports, it is sometimes hard to know what really happened and what comes next. So we invited someone who was there to join us today to help us learn more. Kim Daniels is the Associate Director of the Initiative on Catholic Social Thought and Public Life at Georgetown University. She is also a member of the Vatican Dicastery for Communications, to which she was appointed in 2016 by Pope Francis. She joins us today to talk about the meeting in February, about reform in the church, and what we can look for in terms of next steps. Kim Daniels, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Lenny. Pleasure. So for the past few months, you've been helping, especially with the organizing committee at the Vatican related to this summit on sexual abuse that Pope Francis called for the end of February. So I wanted to actually start our conversation there. Uh, What have been your impressions working first with that committee and then being there in Rome during that summit? Uh, Sure. It was it was a it was a fascinating experience, a very humbling and sobering experience, obviously, uh, to be there around what is just a critical issue for our church right now. Um, And I learned so much. uh, I especially about just to sort of step back for a minute about the global nature of our church. Um, We come from America, where our Catholicism is. Uh, of a particular kind, and it's vibrant, and we have our particular experience here, and that's very important to bring to the universal church, of course. And at the same time, it's also important for us to remember that we are some 6% of the world's Catholics. Hmm. And so bringing in all of those perspectives to think about and address and think about next step forward uh, in Rome with the Holy Father there every day at the head of this meeting um, was just a really uh, transformative experience for me, and I think for everyone who was there. The second thing that was such uh, an important factor at the meeting, and so for everyone there, particularly the bishops, was the testimonies of victims. And I mm-hmm. think that we have to keep the, the experience of victim survivors front and center. It certainly was at the meeting, and I think that the experience of hearing those survivors talk about what they went through, what they felt from the church, how it affected them and their families and their faith, was just transformative for many, many bishops there. What was your impression of uh, what it meant for the bishops? To, and I know you can't speak on their behalf, but just being there, what it meant to to listen to those testimonies? You know, I think that uh, it, it's one of those situations where people know something is coming. Mm-hmm. Um, they know that this is going to be a powerful experience, but to hear it from a person who experienced it uh, is something that you can't uh, put down on paper, you can't describe otherwise. And you really did see the effect it had on them. I was there watching, and and you could see how they were transformed by these testimonies, how even if you read it on paper, you don't realize uh, what it means to happen uh, to a flesh-and-blood person, somebody's brother, somebody's sister, friend, family member, um, and how it's affected their lives, uh, and and the most important part of their lives, their faith, their family, 
so in any event, it was one of it was really transformative. Hopefully for for the bishops there, that's what I saw. Mm-hmm. Of course, the, the takeaway has to be um, what's the follow up. You know, what's the the next steps? And uh, so it's, I'm tentatively hopeful about what happened. And of course, uh, that hope rests on the idea that that uh, we have uh, this was a real turning point. As long as concrete action results from it, mm-hmm. I think for those of us uh, who were you know, watching from afar and reading, you know, reliant upon news reports of what was happening. I think maybe it's difficult to know, you know, will there be concrete next steps or what kind of things might those be? And I know this is still a period of sort of formulating what to do next, but did you have a sense from there in the past several weeks um, of what the kind of reform that we're hoping for might begin Mm -hmm. to look like, some of the elements of it? Absolutely. I think that one thing that I was so impressed with was that the organizing committee, as they prepared for this, was very focused on on getting to concrete results, getting to an understanding of what do we need to do as a universal church and in churches, local churches in different countries, to respond to this problem in a concrete way. Um, and the Holy Father very much focused on the fact that it's not about, you know, we need to say for sure that it's not about simply instituting new processes, procedures, protocols. That's important and necessary, but the first step is a transformation of heart on the part of our leaders to understand how critical and important this issue is as a matter of justice, um, and as a matter of keeping faith with, with our people. Uh, and so that's why concrete results are important. Um, the focus at the meeting, of course, it's a three-day meeting, and so you can't come up with right. uh, a global response. And at right. the same time, on the last day, they did have three concrete results that were announced, and I'm looking forward to seeing some uh, real follow-up on them. And the first was something called a Vade Mecum, and it's you can think of it as a handbook of sorts um, that is issued to every bishop, a very practical roadmap to help help them protect and hold everyone accountable. Uh, and so that's coming, that's, that uh, is on the way, and that was announced on the last day of the meeting. Um, the second is a set of Vatican city-state guidelines for how to handle abuse within the, the Vatican itself. And um, that is important for, uh, in particularly a lot of, of victim-survivor groups had been advocating for this. The idea that the Vatican didn't have a set of guidelines to govern itself mm. uh, was, is a real symbol of, of inattention to this. And so those are on the way as well. And the final uh, announcement about a concrete result that was made uh, at the meeting was this idea of task forces um, that will go to different countries uh, that may not be equipped at this time to really respond effectively to these issues and help them stand up uh, protocols and and, um, groups that can respond and help protect children and and help respond to abuse issues so that we arrive at at real accountability and transparency in different countries depending on where they are on this. And Father Zollner was a real... uh, impetus for this effort, and I'm, I'm confident that it'll move forward, and I think it's a very hopeful sign. Because as you know, you know, every country is in a different place exactly. in their for this. Right. Yeah. That actually brought to mind, you know, something you said a little bit earlier, um, the clo- the global nature and the global perspective mm-hmm. moving out of a, of a American perspective only, that in the U.S., you know, the, the handbook that you're mentioning, we do have probably something much more robust than other countries mm-hmm. have developed thus far in our in our church here, uh, probably following from the Dallas Charter and some of the measures that are in place in dioceses. Um, does that ring true in, in what you saw in terms of the, U, the American church's position relative to other churches? Do we have something to offer there? Well, it's very interesting. As you say, you know, we've had a decades-long experience, uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. tragically. Mm-hmm. This with crisis, 
and uh, and so we have in fits and starts developed responses to it, and, and obviously in partnership uh, under the leadership of, of the uh, Vatican. Um, and at the same time, that puts us ahead of where other countries are for a variety of different reasons. So I think coming into the meeting, when I talked about transformation of heart, I think that there were some bishops from different parts of the world who would say, would have said that this isn't a problem for them, that it's not something that happens in their country, that it's something mm-hmm. that is, uh, you know, sort of a situation in the Western world. And one of the, the great uh, effects of this meeting was to hear people like Sister Veronica Openibo from Africa talk about the fact that in, you know, Nigeria, for instance, they do have this problem. It is there. It's simply that there's a culture of shame that, that doesn't allow people to discuss it. And, um, or in other countries, it, it takes on a different form. So, for instance, it might be, it might be the abuse of women. Um, it might be taking advantage of nuns. It might be, uh, you know, harassment in, in different forms. So uh, it happens around the world. There's different levels of recognition and of discussion of it, and one one uh, hope that people left this meeting with was that we would bring our experience, certainly from the U.S., to how to respond to this, but also we would learn from the experience of other countries as to what uh, we can do to be sure that we are all acting on a global level on this. Absolutely. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. We're talking with Kim Daniels, Associate Director of the Initiative on Catholic Social Thought and Public Life at Georgetown University and a member of the Vatican Digastery for Communication. So in that sense, it sounds like uh, a major part of this co- uh, conversion of heart has to do with a certain awakening in some places, that this is a, uh, a global problem, a go- global issue, something that we have to be attentive to universally in the church, which will take different forms to be manifested differently, perhaps, in the different locations. But nevertheless, to be uh, keenly aware of the needs of people who are vulnerable and of potential abuses that are going on and not being recognized. Does that sound exactly. right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I want to I want to be sure to say that that that's not to say that there's not a baseline standard. I mean, the whole idea is to say that, of course, uh, the church stands against any instance of abuse, mm-hmm. and that's wrong. And, and a priest or a cleric of any kind, a bishop who who abuses, will not continue in ministry. I mean, there's a baseline standard here. And at the same time, it is true that the way we might work, for instance, with civil authorities in different countries might be different depending on how those governments uh, interact with the church and what have you. So the underlying baseline. Uh, coming from this meeting, coming from the Holy Father in the Vatican, is a commitment to responsibility, bishops taking ownership of the issue, uh, and making sure they they understand their responsibility to make sure that this is a priority for them and that they protect children and hold themselves and others accountable. The second theme is accountability, making sure that that accountability is real and authentic, um, and there are all sorts of measures that might be different in different countries, but that ultimately come to the same result of accountability. And finally, transparency. And, and to my, I want to flesh that out just a little, if Please you don't do. mind. I, I think one of the great results of this meeting was to talk about a real discussion of about what real transparency looks like, meaning that all of the Church, not just clerics, should understand what's going on with this abuse crisis and how the Church is reacting. Because, of course, we all are the Church. And mm-hmm. one of the most important presentations that we had uh, at the meeting was from Valentina Alizraki, who was a journalist and writer and who's covered uh, the whole the Vatican since the 70s. Uh, she's been on the people playing over, you know, sort of over 100 times, wow. and she's just a really experienced journalist. And she had a powerful address 
on the last day talking about the fact that, number one, media has really been the ones who have brought this to light for lay Catholics and have helped us address this problem. And, of course, we have examples of irresponsible uh, media with this issue as with any others. But, but by and large, they've just been a, a huge resource for the church and for all of us in responding. And, and to the extent that the church is transparent and open about it, we'll be able to move forward. So I'm very hopeful that that is an instrument of accountability, and it also is an instrument of bringing us all together, lay people, clerics, bishops, uh, all of us together around a path forward on this crisis. As someone who works deeply in communications yourself, what what are the challenges that have been facing, you know, somebody who works on behalf of or in service to the church in these past several months? So you mentioned transparency, which is a priority here in terms of uh, addressing the abu- the abuse, but at the same time, it would seem like the tension with holding media sources accountable for accuracy in reporting. Mm-hmm. So, uh, those are some of the tensions that come to my mind. What have, what are some of the challenges for the communications professionals or the communications profession, um, especially relative to the church here? That's a great question because there are challenges, but I, and at the same time, I want to say that my default position right now is really towards openness and yeah. transparency. I mean, we all recognize that there have been, you know, there's irresponsibility, there's reporting on things that end up not being true, or there's making a uh, a real um, story out of something that, in a way that that is an effort to attack the church or or its other teachings or or efforts like that. And having said that, my my real default position is that that is a problem, but a very minor one compared to the hiding of these issues and the secrecy that has surrounded the abuse crisis in the church, particularly here in the U.S., for decades. And mm-hmm. and without the hard work of journalists working to uncover what is just a crime and, and a great evil and a scandal for our church, um, we would be uh, we would have people being harmed, people suffering. We would not know the extent of the crisis. And so so getting past that mindset of of being suspicious of the media. I think is the first great challenge. I think we're really called to to look how we can partner with and and, uh, and work to uncover this this great evil that has been has been really afflicting our church. The second challenge, frankly, is a mindset within the church that has that uh, level of suspicion and also is is behind the times in terms of of how to communicate in our current media environment. And I was so excited here to um, to work with the great Vatican communications team. Alessandro Desati is our mm-hmm. is the new spokesperson. Uh, Paolo Ruffini is the head of the communications efforts. Andrea Tornielli as well is a very experienced journalist. And under their leadership, um, the communications effort here really made an effort to to transparency. For instance, by live streaming most of the uh, presentations, and those are still available at a website. It's pbc2019.org, um, where you can go and see what happened at, at every day of this conference. Uh, they had briefings every day. Um, they have this great website with enormous uh, amount of resources on it regarding the church doctrine and law on these issues, um, the, the presentations that occurred, and, and what's happening in different countries, and a timeline of the crisis. And for us, that all sounds pretty normal, right? right I mean, that's right, how right. we look at the media. We expect live streaming right. and briefings, and we expect materials to be provided before and after. But that's new, and this team yeah. really did a really wonderful job. What What would you say, then, are the responsibilities for those of us on this side of the news? So um, 
the responsibilities for those who are who are reading the news, consuming the news, and I'm thinking especially of you know the kind of media environment that we live in, and many of us have just become accustomed to gobbling up little bits here and there, and sometimes having <laughs> sure. our hot takes and then moving on. Um, right. What What would you say to to folks on this side uh, of responsibilities? You know, that's such a great point. I mean, we're all uh, we're all so immersed in this 24 seven media culture where we have about you know 30 seconds, if that, if to that. think about the latest story that comes across the transom for us in the morning. And, and, and I think that as Catholics, we really do have a responsibility to approach that conversation um, in, a, in a prayerful way, in a thoughtful way, not to uh, be the first out of the gate, um, to certainly be charitable in how we think about it. And at the same time, on this issue in particular, to hold our leaders accountable. Mm. Uh, and again, a responsible way that, that understands that we are all uh, members of one, one body, one faith, and, and, but we're all the church. And, and it's our job to, to make sure that, that our leaders are holding each other accountable uh, as well. And so that's a great responsibility, but of course it needs to be done uh, charitably, and, um, and we also need to be sure that we uh, don't jump on every... I think there's a real pressure to be the first out of the gate with a response. Oh, totally. Yeah. Quick peek, and, and I just think that has to be resisted at every turn. It's almost like we need to develop some kind of spirituality of media consumption, and maybe even consumption is itself the problem. That, that I think term, that's exactly right. right. That's yeah. a great point. I mean, thinking about it as consumption is, uh, is is a great metaphor. We need to step back from it, have a little bit of slow news, I would say. Slow right? news, media contemplation. Let's start that movement, <laughs> right? Contemplation, that's yeah. right. That's true. I have a hot take on that. I'll be tweeting that out in a moment. So just kidding. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I got to step right, away for a second. Right, yeah, there, I got a new idea, everyone. Listen up. Um, yeah, look at this great thing I just said. <laughs> I want to go back to, to your comments about the transformation of heart. Um, and you mentioned for example, in, in the church in Africa, the culture of shame. And I'm thinking about, uh, especially here in the United States, with uh, the revelations regarding uh, former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick really bringing to light the culture of clericalism, um, which right. I'm, I'm certain is not native just to the church in the United States, but we've really become aware of here. How do we in the church, how do you think we in the church start to reform that culture? Because that seems like a key issue here in the ongoing abuse crisis. Sure, you you really put your finger on something that is a that is a core of the problem, and that is a deference to uh, leaders who wear collars, um, and a deference to the idea that they can make decisions uh, about these issues in secrecy without without the input of engaged and responsible and faithful lay leaders as well, lay people as well. Um, I I think that the way we push back against a culture of clericalism, any number, there's any number of things that we need to start to focus on. And the first, I think, is bringing lay people into the conversation. There's no one in the U.S. conversation, for sure, as we move towards the June meeting and then talk about how bishops are going to be, uh, the bishops here are going to be setting up um, structures of accountability uh, for bishops themselves. There's no one in that conversation who doesn't think there should be uh, lay leaders involved at every turn to help respond to this crisis. And I think the more we bring lay people into that conversation, of course within canonical norms about, about how uh, lay people are involved in the Church, um, but there's so much room for lay involvement there that I think that is a real, the more we're just at the table, the more this culture of clericalism uh, can be reduced. And the second is transparency. It's just, again, bringing these conversations out into the open um, so that we see what, what's going on and so we have more input into them. And finally, it's prayer and it's, it's partnership uh, with our bishops, with our priests. Um, I think as lay people, you know, to call for more involvement also means more responsibility on mm-hmm. our part, and it means learning about 
about these issues, becoming involved, recognizing our own responsibility, and taking that up. So I, I really look for, you know, people who have skills that they can bring to this conversation to make every effort to do that at their local diocesan or parish level, because it's, it's really important, and we have a responsibility to do that, too. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. We're talking with Kim Daniels, Associate Director of the Initiative on Catholic Social Thought and Public Life at Georgetown University and a member of the Vatican Dicastery for Communication. Sharing the responsibility or developing co-responsibility with the laity, as you're saying, is is part of the, the key here. And yet one of the dangers would seem to be the clericalization of the laity, that mm-hmm. just getting laity involved um, is not itself the solution, but getting lady involved as lady and um, exactly. changing exactly. The, the form of that. What do you think are some of the safeguards for that or some of the responsibilities for allowing lay people to serve to really fulfill the lay apostolate here? Well, I, I think that's a great point, too. The idea isn't, of course, that we, we make lay people sort of pseudo-clerics and we, mm-hmm. we give them um, the kind of uh, deference, undue deference, that that, um, that they no one should have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can, of course, remember that at the beginning of this crisis and really throughout, there were lay people who assisted in the cover-up of, of uh, you know, sort of different... Right situations of abuse, um, who, who advised bishops, you know, that they shouldn't talk about it publicly, that they shouldn't meet with victims. Um, and so lay people bore responsibility, too. But at the same time, I just have to say that that decision-making improves when you bring people in with different perspectives to the conversation. And so one, one part of resisting clericalism on both sides is just making sure we have people with different experiences as part of uh, each of these conversations in local dioceses uh, and at the national and at the, the level of the Vatican. It, it, we, that improves the decision-making, it improves perspectives, and I have to say, uh, you know, we, we just have to be said that women have not been as much a part of this conversation as they should be, and if more dads were at the table, certainly, but if more moms were at the table when these issues were being uh, these sort of confronted originally here in the U.S., I think it would have been a different situation going forward. And so I, you saw that at the meeting at the Vatican, the women's presentations were extremely powerful, and they brought a different perspective. And, and having that perspective at the table, and there's so many places where it can be that, that doesn't affect any kind of you know, canonical issues or anything else that uh, I just feel like, feel like that's one of the most important things we can do. Absolutely. You know, your your colleague, John Carr, who we had on the show several weeks ago, made a similar point and uh, was talking not only about the abuse crisis, but also some of the work you're doing there at Georgetown in your initiative that relates to this, but is also broader than um, responding to the abuse crisis itself. I was wondering if you can, it's been several weeks, several weeks since we talked to John, can you let us know a little bit about what's coming up uh, sure. your initiative, some of the things you're focusing on. Yeah, I'm sure John talked about it, but what we do with Georgetown's initiative on Catholic social thought and public life, we like to think about it as bringing Catholic principles to the conversation that matter, conversations that matter. So we bring our social teaching to issues of human life and dignity and immigration and poverty and religious liberty and, and anywhere, any place where faith and public life intersect. And to have those important conversations, um, you have to be able to talk with credibility as a Catholic, because of course we're trying to engage the wider culture as well. And we really saw at the beginning of this year that we couldn't speak with that kind of authority and credibility unless we first addressed the abuse crisis um, and took it head on and, and saw what we could learn and how we contribute to that conversation. So we had a number of events in the fall um, to do this uh, to a 
sort of address this issue, and I'm sure John discussed them. Mm-hmm. We uh, have worked ourselves on different writing and speaking projects to try to advance the conversation. And we have a couple more events uh, happening going forward. And, and we have just had a conversation with Father Hans Zollner, um, as well as a parishioner of Holy Trinity here in D.C., which is a parish that's been very engaged at the local level in crafting response and a survivor of clerical sexual abuse as well, to talk about a path forward on this issue. Um, We're also co-sponsoring a conference with Georgetown's Law School, which I'm really excited about. It's going to talk about how law and lawyers have contributed to and also helped address this crisis, and again, a path forward. What can we do to help respond um, from a legal perspective? Because, of course, so many of these issues are at the intersection of civil and canon law, and uh, and there's much that we can offer there as well. So we're working on that. We're also going to finally bring together some national leaders. We've had a lot of summits and, and discussions about the abuse crisis at different universities and other places around the country this year. We're going to have a sort of summit of summits, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. in June, a convening where we bring together the leaders who have really been involved, just a small group of them, and say, what did you guys learn from your conferences, and how can we tie that all together and contribute as lay people, um, as faithful, engaged lay people in the conversation? In advance of that, what have been some of the uh, bright spots of hope that you've seen so far, some of the good work that has been going on? Well, I think there's there's a lot of good work going on. I think the Leadership Roundtable hosted something called the Catholic Partnership Summit mm-hmm. um, that did the same thing, that brought together people who had been working on uh, these issues to talk about what they learned and, and what we can learn going forward, and most of all, built relationships among people around the country um, to sort of say, what what can we do going forward? And, and by the way, there's not universal agreement, and that's okay. I mean, that mm-hmm. shows the vitality of the conversation. So to my mind, that was a real bright spot uh, earlier, uh, this, earlier this winter. Um, going forward, I think our bright spots are that we're staffing up and building up uh, places where lay people can talk about it, can partner with bishops and partner with clergy to work forward on it. And I think that kind of practical, you know, sort of setting up processes, practical steps is very important. And, and finally, you really have to applaud some bishops who are taking the initiative on their own um, and really making efforts to respond in this regard. Archbishop Laurie in Baltimore mm-hmm. has done great work. Um, uh, Arnold Tobin in Newark has, has Lots of good things going on there. Um, so uh, just lots going on, Bishop McKnight. Um, lots going on where bishops are saying, I'm not going to wait for June. I'm not going to wait. There's plenty we can do right now. And uh, and they're doing it. And that's important. Well, we're coming to the end of our time here, Kim. I'd love to talk longer, but I want to ask you before we go something about you, if you don't mind. I wanted to know, you know, you're you're so deeply immersed in this work now. How did you get into this work in the first place? You're a lawyer by training, right? Um, mm-hmm. And there were probably multiple options available to you. What drew you into working in this arena? You know, it's interesting, Lenny. I, um, my background, as you say, is as a lawyer. I'm also a mom. I have mm-hmm. six kids. My husband and I have six kids. And in trying to combine uh, sort of a life as a lawyer with being a mom, I, most of my time is, was at home, particularly when they were little. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so that took me into doing um, religious liberty work, which I could do pro bono uh, sort of at a public interest firm from home. And that expertise took me to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, um, where I was a spokesperson for a while. And that was my transition into communicating uh, about these complicated issues. Mm. And most importantly, I got exposed to a full range of, of Catholic teaching across issues that are important to us. So immigration, poverty, environmental issues, obviously pro-life issues. I've been working on those for decades now. And 
uh, sort of, obviously I had known about them, but had not been immersed in them, you know, completely. And, and so really widened my scope, um, took me into communications. It was a great, great place for me to be for a while. And, and I love being at Georgetown now and at the Vatican, uh, sort of in a very small role helping out over there just because it's, it's wonderful to be part of this global church. It's, it's fascinating work. And, and I, uh, I love being, having an opportunity to do it. Wonderful. Would you let our listeners know where they can find out more about your work at Georgetown if they want to follow up on some of the things you shared? Sure. We are the initiative at Catholic, initiative on Catholic social thought and public life at Georgetown. Um, if you Google that, you will come to our website, and it lists all our events that are going on, as well as videos of past events. Um, I'm on Twitter at, at @kdaniels8, and uh, but don't look for hot takes there. I'm not a hot <laughs> look take for person. warmed over takes, reheated leftover takes. <laughs> I'm the reheated leftover. <laughs> That's take. right. That's right. It's a mama six. You gotta you gotta use everything in the fridge. I get it. So. Yeah, exactly right. This is the casserole at the end of the week. So, uh. <laughs> the Twitter casserole from Kim Daniels. That's coming there up. There you go. Excellent. Well, hey, Kim, thanks so much for joining us. It's been really oh, great to share this you, time buddy. with you. This is great. All right. And thanks to everyone out there for joining us on Church Life today. 